The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. This is a compilation of the Tangled in the Roots series, parts 1, 2, and 3, all in one place without all the intros and credits. There's no new content here, so if you skip it, you're not missing anything. But if you're listening for the first time, or if you're re-listening, we thought that it might be helpful. Either way, we'll see you back here on January 13th. I've been flipping houses for most of my adult life. My dad passed away in my early 20s. When he died, I got a life insurance policy and what he'd built up in a 401k. It was a decent amount of money, and I used that money to buy my first investment property. My dad had been a contractor, and I'd worked with him off and on since I'd been old enough. So I thought that I knew what I was doing when it came to fixing up old, rundown houses. That first house? That first house taught me otherwise. I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into that place. And also, a lot more time and money than I should have. It was cathartic though. Tearing down drywall with my bare hands. The tedium of learning basic plumbing and HVAC. Getting it all wrong and having to buy new materials to do it all over again. By the time I finished it, I'd taken out my anger and grief on the interior demolition. I'd meditated as I turned screws and spackled and sanded. I spent my nights falling asleep as I looked up at a dark ceiling, listening on a portable CD player to my dad's albums. That first house is where the most intense mourning and grief happened. It's also the only time I've lost money on a house but it's where I learned how to do it right. I turned over two more houses when I met Lindsay. A few weeks after we started dating, I was on a deadline to turn a house around, so I didn't have any spare time. I was surprised to hear a knock on the door. She showed up in work clothes and helped me put the finishing touches on the house. Nothing brings people together more than a shared project, especially a house project. It inspires you to dream together, to really think about what you want. We were able to finish it in time for the buyer, and she stayed with me through the next house, and then the next one. After a year, we pitched in together, and we both did this full time. Twice the people, half the time to turn it around, right? We moved through several houses a year, sometimes more than one at a time. Some of the homes had been abandoned. Other times, 
They'd been lived in, but their former owner had just allowed the place to decay around them. Everything moved really fast after Lindsay and I were officially business partners. In hindsight, maybe too fast. And as we started to approach our 30th birthdays, I could see a change in Lindsay. She was getting tired of the constant moving. So we made a plan. We'd start working toward a bigger vision. We were gonna start a company, a real one. We would hire a crew and rehab houses during the day. And we'd have a place of our own to come home to at night, a real permanent home. We just had to push through until we had the money to make it happen. But somewhere along the way, we hit a wall. Our dream was always just a couple jobs away and then a couple more. We were never quite able to get there. When she got pregnant and the baby came, we had to start being more selective about where we moved into next. It had to be suitable for a child. That meant we couldn't buy as cheap as we used to, and that put us further behind our goal. A couple more years passed, and with no end in sight, Lindsay had finally had enough. After the divorce, I wasn't going to be able to find another place in Louisville. With joint custody, I still had to find homes that were livable for a toddler. And after the settlement, I didn't have enough to afford a place like that. So I had no other choice than to start looking elsewhere. And that elsewhere I found was Maysville, Kentucky. Maysville was a quaint little town, and the properties are cheap. The house I found was a third of the price it would have been in Louisville, but it was two and a half hours away. I'd been in Maysville for a few weeks, getting the house in good enough shape for my son to stay with me. We have to work Ollie's visits around his school schedule. His last day before winter break was on December 10th. The next day, Lindsay and I would meet in the middle and switch out Ollie for the week. He would go home for Christmas with his mom and grandparents, and then come back for a few days, and we'd do our own little Christmas here. And then, he'd be back in school for the new year. And then, who knows how long it would be before I'd see him again. I hated that our visits were so far apart, but I was thankful for these two big chunks of time over the winter break. And, soon enough, I'd make enough to get back to the city, and these long drives and big stretches of time apart wouldn't be an issue anymore. We met up outside of Lexington and Ollie jumped in my back seat. From there, we took a two-lane road all the way to Maysville. The road curves around the outskirts of all the little towns that we pass. And then there's the long downhill stretch into the Ohio River Valley. By comparison to Louisville, Maysville is tiny, but out here, it's the biggest town around. It's just south of Ohio and not far from West Virginia. We got off the main road and onto a much smaller one. Then the road began a steep descent with a number of cutbacks as we made our way down to the old part of town. It was Ollie's first time seeing a road like this, and he loved it. As we approached the bottom of the big hill, 
the trees opened up and we could see the little river town coming into view. Old buildings, old houses, and in the distance, the Ohio River, a tall and imposing bridge crossing over it. The river was different here than in Louisville. Here, the other side was all trees, and the bridge loomed high over the town. He asked if we could go across. I told him not now, but we'd go back over the bridge later. First, we needed to get to the house and unload. There was disappointment in his reply. Okay, he said. I made a mental note that come hell or high water, we would cross that bridge tonight. The divorce had been rough on him, and he needed to know that his dad would keep his promises. When I moved to Maysville a few weeks ago, the house had felt warm and inviting. A big Victorian from the early 1900s. Tons of character. I moved in the tools and cleaning supplies, all locked safely away in the basement. It felt like a different place then. Now, it was overcast and dreary. A misty rain wasn't exactly falling, but more like hanging in the air. From the sidewalk, the house was a looming presence. Anywhere would have looked ominous in this kind of weather, but this place especially did. Over the past few weeks, I'd made good progress on the house. There were some persistent problems. I couldn't keep the kitchen cabinets closed. They always crept open overnight. It doesn't sound like much, but buyers are expecting everything to work as they should. Luckily, Ollie was old enough that I didn't need to childproof them. There was also a smell in the place from time to time, faintly like sewage. I hadn't found a sewage problem yet, and with any luck, it was just a bad heating coil in the water heater. I'd put it in the budget to replace that anyway. I'd also become a fixture at the local hardware store, and all the employees knew me. But while Ollie was here, the work was on hold. For one thing, it wasn't safe, and I wanted to make the most of the time that we had. I would pick up on the work again when he went back to stay with his mom. Maysville is an old river town. The Ohio River cuts a deep valley in the Appalachian foothills, so the town is surrounded by tall hills and ridgelines. The old part of town was built on a relatively flat patch of land directly adjacent to the river. At its widest, the old city extends a few blocks from the river until it hits a steep ridgeline. My house sat on the furthest street from the river, where the land started to ever so slightly incline. The backyard came to an end at a sudden and steep ridgeline, a sheer rock surface that rises high above the town. A few small trees had found a spot to grow here and there along the rock face, and there was a tall wooden privacy fence at the back of the property, separating the yard from the incline. From the front porch, you could look out over the rooftops of the next street, and then all the way to the river and the big bridge off in the distance. Or at least you would be able to see it on a day that wasn't so hazy and rainy as this one. Just inside the front door, there was a living room, a hall that led back to the kitchen, a bedroom and a bathroom. 
Off that hallway was a staircase that took you upstairs to two more bedrooms and another bathroom. My favorite room was the one that looked over the front of the house. It sat more or less right on the sidewalk, so there wasn't much of a yard. But from the window, you could see the river, the bridge, and most of downtown Maysville. A collection of old storefronts and a courthouse steeple. As much as I resented leaving Louisville, I had to admit, it was a picturesque little town. And this house, once I was finished with it, would double in value. And it would be one of this town's hidden gems. I was anxious to make my money and get back to the city, closer to Ollie and everyone else that I knew. But as the investor in me looked around this town, there were plenty of other houses just like this one. I could make this work for a couple of years. Maybe I could get a place back in Louisville and commute here for a week or two at a time. Maybe this was the break that we'd been working for all those years. Lindsay was gone, but... Maybe there was a way for me to still make this work. As promised, I took Ollie on a drive across the bridge later that day. A Welcome to Ohio sign greeted us on the other side of the river. The gray, overcast day had begun to dim into a dark and rainy night. We found a place to turn around and cross back into Kentucky. From the bridge, Maysville looked like something out of an old painting. The lights from town glowing through the mist. The abrupt darkness of the ridgeline behind them. Deserted streets, shrouded in fog. The next morning, that heavy fog still hung over the town. Out the back window, you could barely make out the fence at the end of the yard. You couldn't see the top of the ridgeline. Rock and trees reached upward until they disappeared into the gray. But as the morning went on and the sun began to penetrate through, we went outside so Ollie could explore the backyard. It was still muddy, but the rain had stopped. He looked up at that ridgeline. He'd never seen anything like it. It must have felt like a mountain range to him. He asked about going exploring, and I told him maybe later. I wasn't comfortable with him wandering by himself just yet. But Ollie had reached an age where he was learning to entertain himself. He still wanted me or his mom nearby, but he would play by himself and make-believe conversations. He also learned to make up his own games, usually reenacting episodes of his favorite kid shows. While he was playing, I took some time to hang up an old barometer. I found it in the basement along with some other odds and ends left behind by the previous owner. It looked like it could have been made for an old boat. It had a wooden frame, a barometer gauge, an old mercury thermometer, and a flask with lines on it for measuring rainfall. I cleaned it up and hung it on the fence post next to the house. Ollie had been by the back fence for a while. And when I called out to him, he told me that he'd made a new friend. He motioned to the empty air next to him and said that her name was Bootsy, an imaginary friend, I assume named after his new rain boots. He ran around by the back fence, hiding behind a clump of trees, talking to Bootsy until it was time to come inside for lunch. 
I looked him up and down and he was covered in mud. His face sunk at the prospect of a bath, but I told him that if he got cleaned up, we could do hot dogs for lunch. His eyes widened and his mood turned around just like that. Crisis averted. After our hot dog lunch, Ollie went down for a nap. It was a nice break in the day. Even though he could entertain himself some of the time, he still needed a lot of attention. At bedtime, Ollie had a strange request. He asked if we could keep the windows open. I told him that it was too cold, but he said he wanted to see Bootsy. I told him we needed to keep the windows and curtains closed so that he could sleep well. He'd see Bootsy tomorrow. He threw an exhausted little tantrum, but quickly wore himself out. When I was sure that he was asleep, I quietly let myself out of the bedroom. I went downstairs. They creaked loudly under my weight. I would need to look into that. I got a drink from the kitchen and then went out to the front porch. It was relatively warm for December. Nights on the porch had become one of my favorite things since moving to Maysville. It's quiet and calming, and it helps me wind down at the end of the day. Sometimes a barge or some other vessel will come downstream from the east. I'll watch the lights of the ship approach, pass by, and then fade off to the west, towards Cincinnati and Louisville, back home. But there were no boats tonight. A mist was forming above the water, slight and wispy. Overnight, it would expand, slow and silent. It'll creep out over the banks of the river and climb the long, shallow hill all the way to my house. In the distance, a steady stream of unhurried headlights crossed the bridge. The air brakes on a tractor trailer echoed around the ridgeline. Somewhere nearby, a sound, like a stick breaking underfoot. The next day, Ollie asked me how to open the windows in the house. I told him that he shouldn't open any windows. It's not safe, especially with his room being on the second floor. Not every window in the house had a working lock on it, especially upstairs. I would need to fix that today. We went down to a restaurant close to the water for breakfast, and Ollie got a big plate of French toast that he'd never be able to finish. Afterward, we stopped by the hardware store, and I picked up some new locks for the upstairs windows. The hardware store was a little storefront downtown. They stocked all the basics, and anything they didn't have could be ordered and delivered in a couple of days. It was about the closest I came to socializing in Maysville. The owner of the place, at least I assumed he was the owner, was working the register. I introduced him to Ollie, and he made a big production of meeting him something that old men tend to do with young boys. We walked home, and he ran off all the energy from his French toast in the yard. And he started talking to Bootsy again. In the very back of the yard, along the fence line, there was a clump of skinny little trees surrounded by a big one. 
The trunk of the big tree was about to encroach on the fence line. The roots were already pushing up on it from underneath, causing a few of the planks to rise above the others at the top. It wasn't too bad now, but in a few years, either the fence or the tree would have to go. But that would be a problem for the next owner. For now, it was a magical ancient tree, perfect for a four-year-old's imagination. We could see the rain coming for quite some time as it made its way down the river, a wall of blurry gray. It was a good time to transition to lunch anyway. Ollie protested again, saying that he and Bootsy were still playing. So, I told him that Bootsy could come in for lunch too. He perked up right away. Easy enough. We got inside just as the first big, heavy drops started coming down around us. It had been unseasonably warm the last couple of days. The rain would bring with it colder temperatures more normal for this time of year. Unfortunately for me and Ollie, we were both prone to getting nasty sinus infections when the weather changes. After the initial downpour, it was another dreary, dark day. Rain collected and dripped off the bare branches of the trees and the roof of the house. But on days like this, you can lean into the mood and make it an experience. I made grilled cheese and tomato soup for lunch, and then we watched a movie. About halfway through the movie, Ollie asked to go upstairs to his playroom to show Bootsy all of his toys. I felt bad for him. He wouldn't be here long enough to make any real friends. I honestly didn't know if he'd made any new friends back in Louisville. That's something a father should know. At bedtime, I read Ollie one of his favorite books and turned out the light. I stayed with him until he was asleep. When Lindsay and I split up, he just started going to sleep on his own. But with all the changes that came with the divorce, and especially here, in a new house in a new town, it made sense that he'd want the extra security of one of his parents staying up with him until he was asleep. The only downside is that from time to time, I would also doze off in Ollie's room. And this was one of those nights. Without realizing it, I fell into a heavy sleep. When I woke up, it was one in the morning. The room was cold, way too cold. I got up slowly and quietly so I didn't wake Ollie. Once I was out of the room, the upstairs hallway was even colder. The rain must have pushed that cold air in after all. I was groggy as I made my way down the steps, but when I got to the bottom, I was instantly alert. I felt something, a breeze, not like air from the vents, like wind. I turned my head to the living room, and the front door was standing wide open. I took stock of the room. The open door let in enough light from outside that I could see pretty clearly. 
I moved fast and pushed the door closed, locking it all in one motion. With the door closed, the room was now dark. I fumbled around for the light switch, and when I found it, I winced against the brightness. I took another look around. Everything seemed in order. I must have thought that I'd closed it, but didn't push it all the way in. That's what I thought at first, anyway. But as I made my way through the house, clearing each room as I went to make sure there were no intruders, I got to the kitchen, and the back door was standing wide open, too. I closed and locked that door, but this time, I knew something was very wrong. I pulled a knife from the silverware drawer. With that knife in hand, I went back through the house again, double-checking everything, behind every door and every closet. And then I did it again, just to be sure. I opened the front door and stepped out onto the porch, listening. There was nothing but a distant foghorn from a boat on the river. After the adrenaline ran its course, I went back into the kitchen and I put the knife away. One of the kitchen cabinets had come open again. I pushed it closed and went back upstairs to check on Ollie. He was sound asleep. Using the light from my phone, I checked his closet just to be certain there was no one there. There was nothing. I laid down in my bed that night, but I didn't sleep. The thing about old houses is they're noisy, and every little creak and pop, every time the wind pressed against a window, I was hyper aware of it. Was it the sound of an intruder that I'd missed during my search? Was it the doors creaking open again? I laid awake all night until the first hints of overcast gray morning came through the window, and I heard Ollie start to stir on the other side of the wall. The next day was misty and dreary, the kind of day where you'd swear it wasn't raining, but after a few minutes outside, you were cold and wet. Weather has a way of lingering over river towns this time of year. And just like I feared, with the weather change, Ollie and I both got sick. I checked the doors first thing in the morning, trying to figure out how they could have both come open. I didn't find anything. Deep down, I knew what had happened. Someone had been in the house. Maybe kids thinking it was still vacant. And when they popped the locks open, they saw that it was lived in and they ran off. Maybe. Ollie and I drove to the hardware store. Instead of the owner that Ollie had met the day before, my favorite cashier was working. She gave me a smile and a wave as Ollie and I walked in. I picked up new knobs and deadbolts for the doors. When we approached to check out, she spoke up. Hi there. And who's this little guy? Ollie backed up against my legs. He was still shy around strangers, 
Are you helping your dad fix up the old Taylor place? Ollie finally responded and told her all of his favorite things about the house. He sounded younger than his age. Sometimes he still gets his L sounds mixed up with his W's and B's. I told Brandy that he was a big help. She gave me the bag and a conspiratorial wink. I thanked her and we left. I knew that her bubbly, outgoing demeanor was part of working in retail, so I didn't think much of it. But since I didn't know anyone around here, she was usually the highlight of my day. As we walked to the car, I remembered what she'd asked Ollie. Are you helping your dad take care of the Taylor place? That was the first time I'd heard that my house had a name. I changed the locks while Ollie ate chicken noodle soup for lunch and watched one of his favorite shows. I gave him some children's allergy medicine, and after that, he told me he was going to go play upstairs with Bootsy. Perfect. He stayed in his playroom while I kicked my feet up on the arm of the couch. Having not slept the night before, I was already exhausted. I immediately dozed into a heavy sleep. When I woke up, the light in the living room had changed. I looked at my phone. I'd been asleep for two hours. I shot upright. Panic set in fast. But right away, I could hear Ollie moving around upstairs. I heard the usual clattering of toys on the floor. Everything was fine. He was here. He was safe. I took a deep, relieved breath and climbed the stairs to check on him. He didn't even seem to notice that I'd been asleep. I went downstairs to get a drink of water, and that's when I noticed the back door was open again. It wasn't wide open like last night. It was just cracked. Maybe I hadn't closed it all the way? I stepped into the backyard and looked around. Surely I'd have woken up if someone had come in the house. But before I went inside, I noticed something on the ground. It was that barometer that I'd hung up the day before. It had been in good shape when I hung it up, very well preserved. But now, it was all battered and scraped, far worse than if it had just fallen off the fence. I noticed a rock on the ground nearby with the point that would have made scrapes just about the size of the ones on the barometer. I went back upstairs to Ollie's playroom and I asked him about it sternly. He looked like a deer in headlights. He said he was just trying to get the medicine out of it for his cough. What medicine? I asked. The medicine inside the thermometer, he said. I felt my head spin. There wasn't medicine inside the thermometer. It was mercury. He'd been trying to drink mercury. He went on. She told me to smell the bottles in the basement too, but I didn't because the door was locked. My mouth must have fallen wide open. The basement's where I keep my chemicals and tools out of his reach. He shouldn't even know that they're there. I reacted more harshly than I should have, but I was horrified. If he'd known how to open that door or smash that thermometer, He'd have killed himself while I was sleeping on the couch. I was terrified, 
and Ollie started crying too, reacting to me. I got a hold of myself and I gave him a hug. Where'd you get an idea like that? That's not medicine, okay? It's very dangerous. He nodded his head and looked up at me. His lip was still quivering. He was trying to hold back tears. He said he was sorry, and then he said that Bootsy had told him it would help. Every toy was out on the floor. The room was a complete mess, but that's the least I deserved for falling asleep on him like that. We made a couple new rules that day. Don't go outside without telling me. And don't take any medicine unless me or his mom gives it to him. After cleaning up his playroom, I didn't feel like cooking, so we ordered dinner. Sometime after dinner, he told me that Bootsy had to go home. I told him that it wasn't bedtime yet, and she could stay a little longer if she wanted. There was no harm in playing along. But Ollie insisted. She has to go. Her dad is waiting. I feigned a look of understanding. Well, we don't want to keep Bootsy's dad waiting. I asked offhand, where do Bootsy and her dad live? Ollie looked up at me like it was a perfectly normal thing to say. She lives under the tree. After Ollie was asleep, I went down to the kitchen and poured a drink. I'm not the kind of person that believes in ghosts or spirits, but something was very wrong. Ollie had never done anything like that, and combined with all the doors coming open in the middle of the night, I threw on a sweatshirt and I went out to the backyard. The dreary day had turned into a bright night, with lights from town caught up in the clouds. It was quiet. Even the steady rumble of traffic on the bridge seemed muffled. I picked up the barometer from where I'd left it on the ground. I turned it over in my hands to make sure it wasn't leaking, and then I threw it in the trash. I checked the basement door again to make sure it was locked. Then, I walked out to the end of the yard, to the clump of trees where Ollie had first started talking to Bootsy. She lives under the tree, he'd said. The kids say creepy things all the time. I don't know what I expected to see. There was mud, tree roots, dead leaves. Something in the way that Ollie had said it so matter-of-factly. She lives under the tree. I looked down at the mass of tangled tree roots. They were wrapped around two big rocks, slowly breaking them up, causing them to crack and erode. I hadn't really noticed them before. How often do you pay attention to tree roots? I put my phone's light on the stone, and the harsh glow revealed something that the sunlight hadn't. Texture. It looked like... writing. Crumbling in the tree's grip. Part of a name, part of a date. God damn it. It was a gravestone.
The week went by too fast. And just like that, it was almost time for us to pack up his things and make that long drive to meet his mom. Even though he'd be back after Christmas, I was missing something every time he was away. He'd come back and feel bigger, a little bit more grown up. He'd figure out his R's and L's and W's, and before we'd know it, more and more of those little kid pronunciations would be gone. He'll have new games to teach me so I can play along with them, but he'll have moved away from some others, and that little part of life, it'd be gone. Sure, something new would come in its place, but you mourn little things like that when they're gone. I think every parent has the same thought at some point, a wish that we could stop the passage of time or slow it down a little bit. Keep my little boy like this just a little bit longer. Keep that simple, uncomplicated kind of love. Hold the real world off just a little bit longer. But that's not how life works. We only get the time we have. And when it's gone, it's gone. That goes for your kid's time too. And I was missing too much of it. His last night with me, we went to bed at our normal time. He asked to leave the curtains open again so he could see Bootsy. He'd done this every night this week, and every night I'd closed them after he went to sleep. But tonight, I was already missing him, even though he hadn't gone home yet. I decided to lay there a little longer. Ollie snuggled up against my side, and just like I do sometimes, I closed my eyes, and before I knew it, I was fast asleep. I woke up in a groggy daze. It was three in the morning. Ollie's room felt different. There was something off, something I couldn't place. I looked over and I saw the open curtains on the window, and I felt uneasy. A part of me wanted to get up and close them, but another part of me didn't want to go anywhere near the window. I didn't want to look down into the backyard, but eventually, I did. The night was brighter than it had been when we'd gone to sleep. The moon was out and nearly full. I took a long look around the backyard trying to figure out what was making me so uneasy. There was nothing. I closed the curtains, making sure they were shut tight so the light wouldn't wake him. Then I went across the hall to my bedroom. But I was awake, I was alert, and I was on edge. When I realized that lying there with my eyes open was going to do me no good, I went downstairs to get something to drink. Outside the kitchen window, I could see the whole yard clearly. I got a coat and then stepped out the back door into the grass. I walked back to the tree by the back fence, the one with the gravestones caught up in the roots. I looked at them for a long time. I couldn't believe that I was seriously thinking about it, but I was. That would explain the doors. It would explain the uneasy feelings. And it would explain Bootsy. 
I took my light off the stone and the tree roots and turned back toward the house. That's when I got a shock. The house wasn't the way that I'd left it. The curtains in Ollie's room, the ones that I'd closed before leaving, they were open again. And Ollie was standing there, looking down at me from the window. I dropped Ollie off with his mom and drove back to Maysville. I felt that weight that comes over me every time that I hand off my son to his mom. I feel like I'm letting him down. The drive felt longer than normal. I'd asked him what he was looking at out the window the night before. He didn't seem to remember it. That was worrisome. When I got home, I went out back. For the first time, I took a really hard look at the gravestones in the light of day. There were two distinct stones, separated by a few feet, both caught up in the tree roots. The ground was probably rock from the ridgeline, under a thin layer of soil. The roots couldn't go down, so they just bunched up here, lifting and tangling the headstones. Even though you could make out where the names and dates used to be, they were too faint to read or the stones were just too broken. There were definitely people buried under this tree. I spent a lot of the day googling the address, searching for information about the house. There were property records, old real estate listings. I even found the link to the property transfer from when I bought the place, but nothing else. What was it that Brandy at the hardware store had called it? The Taylor House. I googled that. Nothing. I started searching for other terms. Ghosts, Maysville, Kentucky, Maysville Haunted House. All I saw were some videos by a professor at a university back in Louisville. As a matter of fact, all the top videos were her. But I couldn't find any mentions of my house or Maysville. I clicked on one of the video links. When most of us die, the end is just that, the end. But sometimes, for reasons we don't understand, sometimes, sometimes the world breaks a little bit, and the normal laws of the universe don't apply. There was a contact link. I clicked that. It went to a university email address. I thought about what I would write for a moment, 
And then, I changed my mind and clicked out of the page. I rested that first day that Ollie was back with his mom, but the next day, it was time to get back to work. I made a trip to the hardware store to pick up supplies, but also in hopes of seeing Brandy. She seemed to know a lot about my house that I didn't. And I was in luck. She was behind the register. Hey there, did you call in an order? I told her I did. She came back out a moment later, pushing a cart full of materials. How are things coming at the Taylor house? I told her it was going well, on schedule. A few more customers were milling around behind me. Not exactly in line, just around. I hadn't planned on it being this busy. I tried to lower my voice. So, why is it called the Taylor house? Is that the name of the family who built it? She gave me an intrigued look. They didn't tell you about it when you bought it? I thought it was law that they had to tell you. I knew exactly what that meant. And for the record, they aren't required to tell you if someone died in the house. She glanced over my shoulder at the men behind me. It's a local legend. Our town's little ghost story. Did I buy a haunted house? Tell you what, since you're new in town... Why don't I fill you in at Benny's later? Oh, I don't want to take up your time or anything. I don't mind. It seems like a lot of trouble, but you're really kind to offer. She gave me a look like I was an idiot. Do you realize I'm asking you to take me out for a drink? It's okay if you don't want to, but I just need to make sure you understand what's happening here. Oh, um... Yeah, okay. Uh, when do you get off work? I'll meet you there at nine. Okay, uh, perfect. See you there at nine. I worked on the house until about six o'clock. It was already dark out. I laid down to rest before getting ready to meet Brandy. I set my alarm for 7.45 just in case I fell asleep. I heard cars passing outside and other sounds from town, but the house itself was quiet. I haven't been on a first date in close to 10 years, not since Lindsay. I hadn't expected this. I wasn't looking for it and I wouldn't be upset if it didn't work out. But now that it's a thing, I would just Feel it out and see where it's going. Regardless, it's nice to have some attention. My mind turned to Ollie, the way he'd been standing at the window, looking down at the backyard. All of a sudden, I felt very alone in the house. I looked at my phone. It was 7.15. Outside, that steady drizzle was falling again a staple of December by the river. It created that familiar gray haze. Taillights on the bridge seemed to disappear at a certain distance. I heard a pop from downstairs, the house settling. I couldn't get out of this house fast enough. I showered, got dressed, and was ready to walk out the front door a full 30 minutes early. But before I did, 
I opened my laptop and found the tab with the info of that professor in Louisville. The one that seemed to know about ghosts. Dr. Willow. I typed out a quick email and then left to meet Brandy. Benny's is a typical small town bar. It's on Water Street, right by the river. It's the type of place that's a family restaurant in the evening, and then the kitchen closes and it's drinks only late into the night. I was early, so I waited by the bar. A moment later, the door swung open and Brandy came in. She scanned the room and found me. Hey, you made it. Sorry it was busy this morning. I hope I didn't embarrass you. I told her I was glad that she did and asked what she wanted to drink. We found a table away from the bar. She asked what brought me to Maysville and I told her a half truth. I said that I was looking for a new start after my divorce. I started looking for houses to flip outside of Louisville and found one here. She asked if I was passing through or if I planned to stay in town. I lied again. I told her I hadn't made up my mind. I asked her if she was from Maysville. I grew up here, but I left for a while. When my dad passed, I came home. He was half owner of the store, so now I'm half owner. Oh, I thought you just worked there. Nope, it's mine. Half of it anyway. Do you like it? Most of the time. It's not what I'm going to do forever. How's the house coming along? It's good. It's an interesting place. Oh, yeah? Have you seen any ghosts yet? No ghosts, but I think I found a couple gravestones in the backyard. She leaned in over the table, a certain gleaming in her eyes. No way! Are you fucking with me? They're against the back fence, all twisted up in some tree roots. She leaned back again and looked off to the side, like she was contemplating something. So... You really don't know the story about that place. No, I didn't even know it had a name until you mentioned it. Do you want to hear it? I don't want to freak you out, all alone in that big old house. I told her that I did want to hear it. She smiled, took a drink, and seemed to organize her thoughts. So it's not a long story, but it's pretty awful. There was a family there in the early 1900s. The wife left her husband and took all but one of the kids with her. She left the littlest one behind. When he realized that she wasn't coming back, he flew into a rage. He killed his little girl. And then, when he came to his senses and realized what he did, he couldn't live with himself. He dug her a grave and put her in there. Then, he laid down next to her and shot himself. I tried not to react as she told the story, but all I could think about was Ollie, talking about Bootsy and her dad, about how they lived under the tree. Are you sure you haven't heard this before? Are you just trying to fuck with me? You can come see it for yourself if you want. Don't get me wrong, but that's more of a third date kind of thing. Oh, right. Uh, sorry, I didn't think about how that would sound. Don't worry. I like you. 
I like you too. The conversation strayed away from the house. She told me more about herself. She went to college in Columbus and then moved back to Kentucky. Her parents split up. Her mom moved further south, down by the Virginia and Tennessee borders. She moved back to Maysville after her dad died, just like she said. We had a couple more drinks until midnight when Benny started to empty out. I asked if she wanted me to walk her home and she said that I could. She lived a couple blocks away from the river. The wind was biting and we walked with our hands shoved into our coat pockets. When we got to her house, she stopped and lingered on the sidewalk. I had a good time. We should do it again. I'd like that. There was a moment when we just looked at each other. We knew what we wanted. She'd made every move so far. So, it was my turn. I slept hard that night. Sometime before dawn, I found myself vaguely aware of my surroundings, like I was half asleep, but I couldn't wake up all the way. It felt like sleep paralysis. I couldn't move. My eyes were open and I could look around the room. As they adjusted to the darkness, I saw that my bedroom door was standing open. That was the first hint that something was wrong. I always close it. I can't sleep with an open door. I scanned the room, and then something started to come into view. There was a dark corner in the bedroom, covered in shadow. And in those shadows, there stood a figure. I could only see the most vague silhouette, but it was there. I felt my heart rate quicken. I still couldn't move. The figure stood still, and as my eyes continued to adjust, I could make out the beginnings of a facial structure. Eyes watching me. That's when I heard something. I couldn't tell where it came from. There was a creak on the stairs. My panic was growing stronger, and the paralysis was beginning to lift. I could move my fingers. I know that I saw what happened next, because when you're between the real world and a dream, there's usually a jolting awake, a recognition that you'd snapped out of it. But that didn't happen. I watched as the figure took a step, and then another, making his way, unhurried and unbothered, out of the bedroom, into the upstairs hallway and down the stairs. It took another minute or two to regain my movement. When I did, I shot up and turned on the lamp beside the bed. There was no one else in the room. 
I walked through the house. It was empty. No one. The next morning, I had a response from Dr. Willow, the professor in Louisville. She said that she was interested in my story and that she'd like to schedule a visit. I wrote out a long response. I explained what happened the night before, but when I read over it, I sounded like a lunatic. I would wait and tell her in person. I told her that I was free anytime and hit send. I got back to work on the house the next day. I waited until lunchtime to text Brandy and we traded messages throughout the day. When I finished up, I got a notification from my email. It was a response from Dr. Willow. She asked if December 28th worked for me. After Christmas. Ollie would be here then. It didn't matter. I needed to get this taken care of. For his sake as much as mine. As ridiculous as it sounded, a ghost is trying to hurt my child. Something had to be done, and fast. I wrote back that the 28th would work. I'd figure something out with Ollie while they were here. A couple days passed with no new incidents. I'd left some lights on around the house at night, but I was on edge. Brandy and I got drinks again. Second dates tend to be awkward, but by the end of the night, I was walking her home and we kissed for a long time before she went inside. It started to snow on my walk home. It made the whole night feel a little bit magical. The white sky at night made it easy to see. The snow started sticking to the grass and the sidewalks almost right away. I got home and got out of my wet clothes. I peeked into Ollie's room and turned on the light. All his things were just where they'd been when we cleaned up the night before he went back home. I thought about what Brandy had asked on our first date, if I was planning to stay in Maysville or go back to Louisville. As I looked around his room, I felt the weight of his absence. I would have to tell her that I couldn't stay here forever. I needed to be closer to my son. I laid down in his bed, like I did when he went to sleep for the night. I missed him. I looked over at the window. The curtains were open. I honestly couldn't remember if I'd closed them. I watched the snow fall against the dark ridgeline until I started dozing. I was still groggy when I got up to close the curtains before bed. As I approached the window, I was startled by something outside. Something that was there for a moment, and then was gone, so fast that I couldn't describe it. But it was accompanied by a sensation. It felt like there were eyes on me, coming from that clump of trees. It was all in my head. It had to be. But that didn't make it any easier to sleep at night. The next morning, I woke up with a text from Lindsay, my ex-wife. Her parents had gotten sick, and she was going to look after them for a few days. She'd be gone over Christmas, and didn't think it was a good idea for Ollie to come. She asked if I could take him for a few days. She'd be back in Louisville on the 27th. 
I wrote back that I'd love to have him for Christmas, and that I hoped her parents were going to be okay. No response. This actually worked perfectly. I'd get Ollie for Christmas instead of New Year's, and he'd be back with his mom before Dr. Willow came to see the house and do whatever it is that she does. I went all the way to Louisville to get Ollie this time, instead of meeting in the middle. Lindsay had to get packed and she was going two hours in the opposite direction. I didn't mind. It meant that I could be away from the house for a bit. When we approached Maysville, Ollie started seeing the snow on the ground, and he was delighted. As we approached that steep, curvy road down to the old part of the city, the rooftops and hillsides were bright white. The river cut a grayish-blue track through the middle of the scene. When we got to the house, Ollie asked a question I'd been dreading. Can I play in the snow with Bootsy? Is she still there? If Ollie had forgotten about Bootsy, Maybe I could believe that it was a huge overreaction. His imagination getting the better of him, and then mine getting the better of me. But he hadn't forgotten. A thought occurred to me, and I sent Brandy a text. Does the hardware store have sleds? We picked up a sled from the store, and Brandy told us the best places to find a good hill. She was planning to go see her mom in southeastern Kentucky, about two hours away. We planned to see each other again before she left, but with Ollie back in town, that would have to wait. We went home and bundled up for a day out in the cold. Ollie's room was still tidy and cleaned up. It wouldn't look this clean again until he was back with his mom. I sent Brandy another text wishing her a safe drive and to let me know when she'd arrived. Then. Me and Ollie went out into the snow. Since Ollie was back, I'd taken a few days off from working around the house again. We filled our days like we'd done the first time around. Wake up, play, nap time, play again, wind down, and then bedtime. If we could squeeze in a little outing, we'd do that too. The snow kept coming but in quick spurts. Ollie played in the back, making tiny snowmen. The next day, the next day was Christmas Eve. That night, Ollie opened up one present. It was our tradition from before, back when we were a whole family. He was so amped up about all the other presents under the tree that he had a hard time winding down for bed. I didn't mind. You only get a few of these, these early Christmases. There's no need to rush it to an end. The next morning, Ollie opened up his presents and we spent the day assembling and playing with all his new toys. Brandy texted me that morning. Two full days of family time had been enough. She was coming back to Maysville later in the day and asked if I wanted to hang out and watch a movie after Ollie was in bed. I told her that I'd love to. Me and Ollie had our usual snowy day special, grilled cheese and tomato soup for dinner, and then it was bedtime. I didn't want Ollie to meet Brandy yet, not as a woman that I was interested in. I was worried that might be too much too quickly. 
I wasn't concerned about him waking up while she was here. Once he was down, he slept like a rock. I put him to bed and then went across the hall to my bedroom. The snow out my window was bright white. I looked out at the town for a little bit. There were almost no headlights on the bridge. Everyone was home, tucking in their little ones or watching old movies that reminded them of when they were young, back when the world still seemed endless. Brandy was about 30 minutes away. I took a shower and shaved and put on something that was meant to look good, but not like I was trying too hard. Outside the window, the yellow streetlights grew fuzzy as they got further away. I left the Christmas tree on, as sparsely decorated as it was. It made the house feel cozy. Next year, it would feel more like a normal holiday. It had to. I put on a TV channel that plays non-stop holiday rom-coms. And just then, I heard a little tapping on the door. Outside the window, I saw Brandy's car parked on the street. I let her in, and we went to the kitchen to open a bottle of wine. I poured two tall glasses and met her back in the living room. We settled into a movie. This one was about a woman coming home to the small town where she grew up. She hits it off with a local bakery owner, and everything seems a little bit too perfect. Like something's not right. I look over to Brandy and raise my arm a little. She scooched in, letting my arm fall around her shoulder. She kicked her legs up over mine and reclined back. We were both tired, but it was a comfortable kind of tired. It's so weird being in this house. Oh yeah? It was just a ghost story when I was a kid. I wanted to tell her everything that had been happening but I didn't want to sound like I was out of my mind either. So I asked if she really believed it was haunted. Why? Have you seen something? Well, Ollie has an imaginary friend named Bootsy. Bootsy's a little girl, and she has a dad, and Ollie told me that she lives under the tree in the backyard. You're fucking kidding me. She sat up, swinging her legs off my lap and onto the floor. Are you serious? Also, there are grave markers under that tree. Brandy's mouth dropped open. You have to show me, right now. I wasn't expecting this reaction, but we both grabbed our coats and went out into the backyard, all the way to the back where the clump of trees stood, bare with snow gripping onto the branches. I bent down and wiped the snow off the crumbled gravestones. Oh my god. I always thought it was just a story. We stood there for a moment, and then the cold really set in. There was a thin layer of snow on our coats. It had fallen just enough to smooth out all the imperfections from the day. When we turned around, Brandy noticed something. She pointed to the middle of the yard. I saw a fresh trail of footsteps. They came from the fence line and made their way right to the middle of the yard, stopping about 20 feet from the back porch. Had they been there when we came out? The footsteps only came one way, as if the person who made them should still be standing right there. 
but there was no one. I scanned the whole yard, nothing out of place. The night was so bright that there were no shadows to hide in. We walked to where the footsteps ended. It was bizarre. Let's go inside. I agreed. I had an overwhelming impulse to check on Ollie. As we reached the back door, I noticed that the lights were out. I hurried in and Brandy was just behind me. The first thing I noticed was the light coming down the hall. The front door. It was standing wide open again, a street light casting its glare off the wood floors. And right there in the middle of it was the silhouette of a person, a child. It was Ollie. He was standing directly in front of the door to the basement, looking up at the padlock I'd installed to keep him out, like he was trying to will it open, like something or someone wanted him to go down there. I've always loved that week between Christmas and New Year's. Everything feels kind of loose. It's easy to forget what day it is. When Brandy and I came inside on Christmas night to find Ollie trying to get into the basement, I knew that he couldn't spend another moment in this house. We spent the next two days at a hotel. Hotels are exciting for little kids. There's a pool, there's a big breakfast, I knew that he'd tell his mom about it, but it could be explained away. After all, what kid doesn't like a pool? After that night, I told Brandy everything that happened in the house. The doors opening, Ollie's imaginary friend who he says lives under the tree. How his imaginary friend keeps telling him to ingest poison. I even told her that I'd reached out to Dr. Willow for help. Brandy asked if she could be there when Dr. Willow came. I didn't see why not. The afternoon of the 27th, I drove Ollie all the way back to Louisville. I didn't mind being out of town again. I felt lighter when I was away from the house. At least now, I knew that my son would be safe. I considered going back to the hotel for the night. Brandy had offered for me to stay at her place. As much as I wanted to, I just wasn't in a good mental place. I also didn't feel good about the way I'd been lying to her. It wasn't a huge lie, or at least I didn't think so, but it was a lie nonetheless. 
I told her that I wasn't sure if I was staying around or not, but the truth is I knew that I wasn't, and I knew why I told her that. Brandy's not naive. She probably knows the truth, but romantic feelings do strange things to otherwise reasonable people. It lets you believe in magic. I told her that I was exhausted, but we made plans for the following day. She'd come over in the morning and be there to meet Dr. Willow. And we made plans for tomorrow night. The next morning, just before noon, Brandy came over. A few minutes later, the doorbell rang. I opened the door to find a man and a woman on the porch. Hi, Abby Willow. She was with a man that she introduced as Elijah Hall. He reached out his hand for me to shake. Call me Eli, he said. Dr. Willow spoke up. Eli works in the geology department. It's nice to meet you. Do you mind if I ask why we need a geologist? We don't. We need a ground-penetrating radar unit. Our school has an archaeology program that's run out of the geology department. It means that Eli has access to one. He gave me a little shrug. Don't worry. Eli's curious about these kinds of things in the same way we are. He's also going to be able to tell for certain whether there are graves back there. All of a sudden, I was feeling overwhelmed and a bit self-conscious. I think I'd expected someone to show up and feel around the house for energy or something like that. I hadn't expected serious people. I showed them around the house and explained what had been happening. The doors opening in the middle of the night, the footsteps in the snow. I started at the beginning, my son's imaginary friend. That imaginary friend telling him to drink mercury and drink or breathe in all the cleaning supplies. I told her that the house has a history. A man lost control and killed his daughter and himself. And now, my son has an imaginary friend named Bootsy, an imaginary friend that lives under the tree with her father. That feels way too spot on to be a coincidence. She asked where I'd heard the story about the man and his daughter. I looked over to Brandy. I'm actually the one that told him. It's kind of a local legend. I heard about it when I was a kid. Dr. Willow was taking notes as we talked. She'd ask questions about anything strange happening. When you first moved in, was there something out of the ordinary that you didn't notice then, but looking back, it feels a little strange? Any difficulties with the work on the house? Headaches? feeling faint, time getting away from you, strange smells or sensations? I told her nothing really started until Ollie came to stay with me. I asked her if that could somehow have activated Bootsy, someone here that was her age. It's possible, but I'll be honest with you. Most of the time, it doesn't turn out to be a ghost. It's usually something perfectly explainable. I felt a pang of defensiveness. I think she could see it on my face. That doesn't mean that our clients are any less intelligent or that they're gullible. This is a tough subject. It's why you call an expert to help. 
But on the occasions that I do think we're dealing with something supernatural, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to what's causing it, or what it wants. Does it seem like we have something going on, or am I just connecting a bunch of random dots that don't mean anything? I don't know yet. I think it's possible that you're wrong, but I don't think you're lying. Well, fair enough. So, would you mind showing us around the house? I gave them a tour of the house and showed them where everything happened. Brandy and I sat in the living room while Dr. Willow and Eli went through the house again on their own. We went out back and I showed them the gravestones in the backyard, tangled up and crumbling in the tree roots. It wasn't ideal for the ground-penetrating radar they brought with them. Let's see if we can find a better way to figure out what's down there. Dr. Willow and Eli packed up. They were going to the library in City Hall to do some research on the property and the previous owners. I need to get to the store. Are we still on for later? I told her I was. And just like that, I was alone in the house again. I knew that I'd be talking with Brandy later that night, coming clean. But I didn't want to think about that now. So instead of working myself up over that conversation, I got back to work on the house. Later in the day, Dr. Willow gave me a call. She'd found property records for my house, all the way back in 1917. She was able to identify the tailors that the house was named for. She even found birth records for the Taylor children. She asked another question that took me off guard. Has your son learned to read yet? No, he kind of knows his ABCs, but he's not reading. Is there any way he could have read the gravestone or heard someone read it? I don't think so. I can't even read it. Why? Your son's imaginary friend is named Bootsy. The girl that died in the house, the one we think might be under the tree, she would have been about your son's age. Her name was Lucy. It's common for kids to mix up their letters. Does he mix up L's and B's? No. So if he heard you say Lucy, or he'd managed to read the gravestone somehow, he wouldn't mix up his letters and call her Bootsy? You don't think he read it. You think he heard it. I think it's possible that your son has made friends with a ghost who says her own name a little funny. Or maybe the way they communicate makes some sounds tricky. My head was swimming. This was too fantastical. But a part of me knew that it was true. I don't think it's a good idea for your son to come back here. What do we need to do? I need to learn more about their lives and how they died. The town's historian is also the librarian. I'm meeting her after she gets off work. Once I know more, we'll need to figure out how to put them to rest. Don't do anything until I find out more. They were gonna find a hotel for the night and she'd have another update for me in the morning. 
I asked if she thought that I should find a place to stay for the night, and she said that if they hadn't tried to hurt me yet, they probably weren't going to. But she couldn't make any promises. We ended the call, and my head was spinning. Bootsy was Lucy. Lucy Taylor. There are moments in your life when you have two competing impulses. You want to talk about something, but you also want to push it from your mind. Everything about this house triggered those impulses. I had to turn a profit. If I didn't, I don't know what would happen next. This is the only kind of work I've ever done. Brandy and I had plans that night, but we need to talk first. It was long overdue. I put on a heavy coat and I walked to her house. It was time to be honest with her. I think that I wanted it to be true when I told her that I was thinking about staying in town. I think I wanted her to be someone that I would stick around for. And in another time, I probably would have. But I'm not as young as I used to be. It's not like it was when I met my ex-wife. Life is more complicated now. And sharing custody this far away is hard. It's hard for me, but it's especially hard for him. And, inevitably, Ollie will resent me. Maybe not now, but later. The weekends he'd have to spend away from his friends the endless driving, and what I imagine to be a growing distance between us. Every parent wants to stop time, to keep their kids simple and uncomplicated, the most precious kind of love. Maybe we don't want to lose who we are in their eyes. Maybe we don't want to watch them learn that we're flawed and sometimes selfish. But I think most of all, most of all, we want more time. Because in the end, time is the only thing we can't get back. And I'm missing a little bit more of it every day that I'm gone. That night, Brandy and I sat on our porch in our coats. I told her everything I've been thinking on the way over. I picked up a bottle of wine and we took sips straight from the bottle. After I finished talking, we sat in silence for a long time. I don't know what you want to do from here, but I get it if you don't want to keep seeing me. Yeah, no sense in getting attached. Even after I went out of my way to ask you out, at my job of all places, Honestly, I wasn't sure why you liked me in the first place. I'm not sure either. I think I just know that I don't like any other men in this town. I wasn't sure how to follow that. Luckily, I didn't have to. Brandy spoke up again. So, what did the professor say? What's going on in that house?
I walked home from Brandy's a little tipsy. The moon was out, reflecting the snow and lighting the way. At the end of the street, right before it ended against the ridgeline, stood my house, dark and empty. A sense of dread came over me as I approached. I scanned the windows, looking for anything out of place, but I told myself that it was just an old empty house, a house that I was almost finished with, and I couldn't afford any more hotel rooms. I went to bed that night with that sense of dread that I'd become accustomed to. I laid in bed, listening for the sound of opening doors, footsteps, but the alcohol from Brandy's porch helped me fall into a quick and heavy sleep. That night, I dreamed that I was moving through the house. It didn't look like it would when I was finished with it. It was in its original form, at least as my subconscious imagined it. It was lived in and cozy, as though it were only a few years old. All the flourishes of the Victorian era, before a string of owners and landlords had shaved them away, painted over them, or they were otherwise dulled down by time. The boards on the front porch were sturdy and didn't slump. The stairs creaked, but less. The kitchen light was on, and inside, Ollie was finishing his bedtime snack. And at the table next to him, it was Lindsay, my ex-wife. Ollie coughed, and then he sneezed. I could tell from the look of him that he was running a fever just like he had when he caught a cold the first time that he came to stay with me. As if on cue, Ollie finished his snack, gave me and his mom hugs and kisses before running upstairs to bed. We tucked him in and watched him drift away to sleep, knowing that he'd feel better in the morning. In my dream, Ollie is the same age that he is now, but Lindsay and I are young like we were when we first met. I had a little bit more hair and a little bit less of a stomach. Lindsay still looked at me the way that she used to, something I didn't know that I missed until just then. The next thing I know, we're out front, sitting on a porch swing, swaying back and forth. There's a crisp little wind and it feels good on my face. In the distance, we look at two big masts rising up out of the Ohio River. The bridge is under construction. Lindsay smiles like it's an inside joke between the two of us. That we shouldn't be here. The night is getting colder. I can feel it all over my body, but especially my face. But I wanted to stay in this moment a little bit longer. I thought that I was over Lindsay. Between the short fling with Brandy and throwing myself into the work on this house, it had let me overlook the fact that I still missed my wife. And I missed the life that we had. The cold was really settling in. I was shivering. Just then, Lindsay put her head on my shoulder and scooched in close to me. And I heard a little voice. But I didn't know where it was coming from. 
Daddy, can I sleep with you? It sounded like Ollie. Lindsay pressed her body harder against mine. I was just starting to become conscious of the fact that I was dreaming. My awareness was split between the real world and the dream world. In the real world, I was asleep in my bed. In my dream, I was on the porch with my ex-wife. But I was cold in the real world, just like I was in the dream. I heard that voice again. I don't feel well, Daddy. The sound of the voice ripped me out of the dream. It sounded like Ollie, but it wasn't him. As I opened my eyes, I saw a bulge in the comforter next to me. A shape that looked like a person. It looked like how Ollie would curl up with me if he were lying under the covers. But Ollie was home with his mom. I shot up out of bed, backing out of the door and into the hallway. My heart was pounding and my entire body was pumping adrenaline. Nothing happened. It took a moment for me to gather the courage to move. As I crept back toward the bedroom door, I felt like my heart might explode. I peeked my head inside. There was nothing there. My arms and legs went limp. I was still trying to catch my breath. My heart was slowing, but only a little. Only now, as I stood bent over in the upstairs hallway, did I notice the sound from downstairs. The sound of the elements outside. Wind and the traffic from the bridge. The subtle difference in the light at the bottom of the stairs. I knew even before I went down, the doors were standing wide open. I went back to the hotel to stay the night. I wanted to call Dr. Willow right after it happened, but it was two in the morning. In the hotel, I slept hard, harder than I'd slept in a long time. I hadn't realized what the anxiety over the house had been doing to me. I awoke at 10 a.m. to a call from Dr. Willow, asking where I was. She'd been trying to reach me for an hour. I told her that I was on my way. When I arrived, they were waiting in front of the house. I explained what happened the night before. The dream, the shape under the covers, in bed with me. The doors wide open again. Dr. Willow and Eli gave each other a look. Let's go inside and talk. Are you sure it's safe? I'm sure. The night before, Dr. Willow had met with the town's head librarian and historian a retiree who volunteered her time and spent years learning everything she could about her town. Brandy, and the rest of town for that matter, they'd been half right about what happened in this house. Dr. Willow learned that there was, in fact, a family here named the Taylors, and Mrs. Taylor had left Mr. Taylor, and she'd taken all but one of their children. But there was a reason that she left. 
1921, there was a tuberculosis outbreak in Maysville. Mrs. Taylor and the other children hadn't left because Mr. Taylor had become crazed and violent. They left because he and Lucy had gotten sick. I could feel my heart sink. I was already putting some of the pieces together. Lucy went first. He dug her a grave in the backyard because no one wanted to touch the bodies or come near the infected. No one would transport them to the cemetery. He dug two graves, one for her and one for him. In his condition, it must have taken days to dig them. He would have become exhausted and out of breath. It may have been what caused him to go so quickly after her. I thought about what I'd heard the night before. A little voice crawling in bed with me, telling me she didn't feel well. I asked the only question I could think of. Why were they trying to hurt my son? Why did Bootsy, Lucy, why did she try to get him to drink mercury and cleaning supplies? Are they vengeful to see me and my son alive and happy? You mentioned that the two of you caught a cold around the time you noticed the strange activity in the house. I nodded. A hundred years ago doesn't seem all that long, but it was a completely different world. There was no medicine like we understand it today. People tried anything, especially when things got really desperate. Sometimes they ingested mercury. They drank turpentine. Maybe they're vengeful and angry and out to hurt you, but... Maybe they thought your son had tuberculosis. Maybe they were trying to help. Dr. Willow and Eli put together the ground-penetrating radar, and they went out to the end of the yard. And on a cold December morning, a century later, there they were, just where we thought they'd be. Underneath the crumbling gravestones, twisted up in the tree roots. Their bodies, once buried in side-by-side graves. They'd shifted and been pushed together by the changing earth and the slow, persistent pressure of the roots. They were pressed together into a hug. Back inside, Dr. Willow and Eli were debating how to put them to rest. You know, I just study this stuff. I've never had a case where I thought someone was really in danger. Apparently, there's no real consensus about how to get rid of a ghost. Sometimes they go away on their own. Sometimes you have to keep trying things until something works. Mark the graves, unmark the graves. Move the remains to a cemetery, destroy the remains altogether. There didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. I listened to them while I thought about Ollie. Maybe when the tree started breaking apart the gravestones or moving their bones, it caused them to come back. Maybe they've been here the whole time and it was a sick child in the house that got their attention, compelled them to make themselves known. I thought about what she said. Maybe they'd been here the whole time. My mind was all over the place, 
but things seemed to be coming together nonetheless. The cabinet doors. I'd checked them so many times, but they kept coming open, and I'd missed it the first time she asked. But there was a smell. The smell of sulfur, like a spent heating coil in a water heater, except it happened all over the house. In the other room, I could hear them arguing about what to do next, how to put their spirits to rest. Maybe it's because it's been on my mind lately, but I couldn't help but think of that wish that every parent makes at some point, a wish that time would stop, that you could keep them like this forever, sweet and innocent, and share that perfect, uncomplicated kind of love. I don't know anything about the supernatural, but I know about being a dad. So, I spoke up. Is there a reason that we have to put them at peace? Do we have to get rid of them? It was one thing when we thought it was some maniac who killed his daughter, but... I mean, they didn't get enough time. But now they've got all the time in the world. Dr. Willow wasn't sure what would cause their spirits to move on. She wasn't sure if humans even had the ability to do that. But one thing that everyone agreed on, maybe it was a hunch, maybe it was all the stories and movies we've seen over the years, but we agreed that any change to their gravesite could cause them to move on, putting up new markers with their names or removing the old ones. We couldn't risk it. I wouldn't risk it. But. I made a few choices of my own. First, Holly wouldn't be coming back to visit me here. It doesn't matter if Lucy and her dad thought they were helping. It wasn't safe for him. Second, I wasn't going to sell the house to anyone with kids, even if that made it harder to recoup my money. And finally, I was going to fix that fence that the roots were slowly destroying. I dipped into my savings, and I pushed that entire fence back a few extra feet, past the property line, but I don't think anyone was going to notice. It hits the foot of a ravine, after all. There's no one behind me to contest it. It wasn't a permanent solution, but it would last a little while. We don't get to keep anything forever. Eventually, we lose it all. The ghosts of the father and daughter under my backyard are no exception. Someday, the tree will come down. Someday the river will come up out of its banks, and rock slides will bring down these hills. I can't keep them safe forever, but I can try. Thanks for listening to this episode of 13. This was the Tangled in the Roots series, written and narrated by Ian Epperson. Brandy was Bridget Howard. Dr. Willow was Emma Shujarko. Music, editing, and sound design by Caleb Ritchie, with assistance from Brooke Jeanette. 
That song that you heard at the end of the bar scene in part two was Silly Mountain by Proper Pet. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on January 13th.